This is a difficult time. We know it's been many weeks and we're struggling through it, but God is good and He is gracious and He is sustaining His people through this season. Lamentations 3.22 says this, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We're going to worship together this morning, and we're going to look at His Word, and we are going to be filled with truth. We are going to be encouraged, and we are going to have strength for today and be given bright hope for tomorrow. Would you pray with me? Lord, we thank you so much for being here with us. We thank you, Lord, that you haven't abandoned us. You have provided for us, even as we walk through these difficult, these dark, these shadowy times, Lord. Thank you for your truth, which guides us, which comforts us, which reminds us of your wonderful promises to us. I pray that they will bless your people this morning, that they will encourage us, and they will give us everything we need to take one more step, live one more day, and worship you with all that we've got. We love you. We pray these things in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Now let's worship together. Good morning. Welcome, church. We invite you to come worship the Lord with us this morning.
Bye. 
becoming good friends. It didn't take much to become a good friend of mine. The pickings were actually a bit scarce in those days. Being homeschooled in the mid-80s, that offered little opportunity to create friendships outside of the home. But there he was, a friend, a new friend. It was a big deal. Hanging out was something that I, I really looked forward to. But as we spent more and more time together, there was one thing about this friend that was becoming really annoying. 
I first noticed it at lunch. My brothers and I were eating our typical ham or, or bologna sandwiches, probably some nacho-flavored ch chips and some fruit punch. We offered some to my friend. But then, very, very quickly, we found his mom swooping in and informing all of us that they didn't eat that kind of food. Then there was the time that I brought a skateboard to the park. Homeschoolers, they would, they would meet at a park, they'd have what they call park day. Now, I didn't know how to skateboard, but there was this great hill in the back where the concrete path was, it was straight and smooth. And if you sat on the board, you could get going really, really fast. After a conversation with mom, though, my friend told me that he couldn't ride because, well, he might get hurt. And if he got hurt, that might ruin his chances of becoming a professional baseball player. Then there was a time when we had his family over to swim in our pool. Yes, we had a pool. It was awesome. I was so excited to share our prized possession and jumped right in, only to pop up out of the water to see my friend being lathered in this thick, goopy, white stuff. And then he was fitted with these bug-eyed swim goggles before he braved the onslaught of sunshine and chlorinated water. And that was the point where I began to wonder if this friendship was going to work out. In 1990, Foster Klein and Jim Fay, they coined a term, you've probably heard of it, helicopter parenting. It's the term that describes parents hovering over their children, ever ready to rescue them from the slightest trouble when it rears its ugly head. In a later edition of their book, Parenting with Love and Logic, they describe the latest version of helicopter parents, noting, these parents are obsessed with the desire to create a perfect world for their kids, one in which they never have to face struggle, inconvenience, discomfort, or disappointment. Now, as extreme as that sounds, there's something about that that, that I get. As a parent of two girls, I know what it's like to want the best for your children. I'm familiar with that deep-rooted desire to protect them, to equip them, to prepare them for whatever might come their way in life. And parents have high hopes for their children. We want them to succeed. We want them to flourish. We want them to avoid those missteps that we've made and walk through life with maybe less pain and maybe more joy than we had. In the eyes of newborns, we see something pure and innocent, a fresh start, a new hope, another chance at life before the corrupting elements of a corrupted world take their toll. And so we shelter, we protect, we watch carefully, we selectively introduce new experiences, we provide opportunities, and we give them all the resources that we can with high hopes that they'll walk down a good path and that they'll make much of their lives. But you know, as hard as we try, we still find that none of our efforts can make them incorruptible. That's because even if we cut them completely off from the outside world, there's no way that we can protect them from the corruption that lies deep within. When it comes down to it, there's only one true hope for our children, there's only one true hope for our grandchildren or our friends or our co-workers or the next generation. And that is to have the corruption in their hearts removed by the cleansing and transforming power 
of Jesus Christ. Thankfully, 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. And if that's true, then the greatest gift that you can offer any of them is not to helicopter over them, it's not to give them your money or give them a chance at that all-coveted college scholarship or even to have all the experiences that you wish to have had, but it's to let your life point them to the reality that God is the answer to all life's questions and the solution to life's biggest problem. You see, the greatest gift that you and I can give others is a life that is wholeheartedly devoted to God. That's because it's in Him alone that they can exchange corruption for incorruption. Jacob failed to do that. He failed to do that after he parted ways with his brother Esau. And because of that, Genesis 34, our, our passage this morning, is grim. It's a tragic picture of a man's half-hearted devotion to God and the impact it had on his children. So we're going to walk through it together. And as we do, let's extract some insights that will alert us to the dangers of not carefully guarding our own personal walks with the Lord and making sure that our lives point to the hope that is found in Him. Let's look at verse 1. Genesis 34, verse 1. It says this, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. Now, if you remember, Jacob is a man with a big family. Thus far, he has 11 sons. He has Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, and Joseph. 11 sons! But he has one daughter, and her name was Dinah. She was Leah's daughter, which may mean that she didn't hold all that significant a place in Jacob's heart. And it's possible that he didn't really pay that much attention to her at all. And that actually seems to be the case, because in verse 1, we see that she went out. Now, that may not seem significant to us in our modern, independent culture where people come and go as they please, and it's no big deal. But in that day, girls didn't just go out. They remained home unless they had some type of chaperone to accompany them. That was a big deal. Here we see Dinah went out, probably without anyone knowing, maybe without anyone noticing, probably, and she goes to see the woman of the land. Now, who were these women? And what was this land? Well, these were the women of the land of Canaan. They were the pagan women of the community. They were women who didn't know and didn't care anything about the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. They were women whose lives were very different from the lives of Jacob and his family. Lives that could leave an impressionable mark on the mind of a young girl who didn't have much of a taste of the world beyond the border of her family. Last week, we talked about how Jacob had been invited to go back to Esau's land, to Seir. 
But he didn't do that, remember? He led his brother to believe that he was going. His brother went on ahead and he said he was going to follow. But instead, he trailed off toward a city called Shechem. Now, we need to understand that this is not the place that God had called him to go. Jacob knew where he was supposed to go. He was supposed to return to Bethel, where God had first met him in that dream, remember? But he didn't do that. Instead, he landed about 20 miles short of Bethel in a place called Shechem. Ian Duguid, professor of Old Testament in Westminster Theological Seminary, he asks a question. He says, why was that? What was Jacob doing settling down at Shechem and raising an altar when he should have been continuing on to Bethel to raise an altar there, where he had first had the dream? Did Jacob think that Shechem was a better site for trade or for his flocks? Perhaps he thought it didn't matter. After all, Bethel, Bethel was now a mere 20 miles or so away. He could go there whenever it suited him, once he got settled. Why be so precise in these things, Shechem or Bethel? It's really all the same, isn't it? Indeed, it is not, he writes. Whatever his motivation, Jacob's compromise and his failure to follow through with complete obedience to what he had vowed would cost him and his family dearly. And that's exactly what happened. Look at verse 2. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. Now, this is bad. There's some dispute as to what really happened here. Was this something that was forced on Dinah against her will, as our translation seems to indicate? Or was this more of a, a mutual encounter? as the verbiage of the Hebrew actually allows. As we read on, we discover that Dinah doesn't return home after this, but she stays in the house of Shechem. So maybe it was her decision. But either way, the encounter, it brought, it brought great humiliation to her and to her family. Not only was she unmarried, but this was, a, this was a joining with the people that God's law would later expressly prohibit. It, see, Israel was, was meant to be set apart, a people for God and God alone. Abraham knew that. And that's why when he enlisted his servant to go find a wife for his son Isaac, he was very insistent that the servant not find a wife from the pagan people of the land, remember? But this... Well, this is, this is a terrible ordeal. This was an incident that brought shame on Dinah, shame upon the entire family, and it tainted them as a people whom God had set apart to be the vehicle through which the child of promise would be delivered. It tainted them and marred them. It's important for us to notice that this incident is its something that, if you think about it, it never would have happened had Jacob done what God asked. By settling in Shechem, Jacob unnecessarily allowed his family to be influenced, to be enticed, to be corrupted by the pagans in the land. I imagine in most respects, Jacob would have probably been considered a good dad. 
He was still present with his family. He still provided for them. He still uh, brought them to a good land. Maybe Shechem was a really nice place to call home. But his failure to wholeheartedly follow the Lord left his children unnecessarily exposed and vulnerable to the influences they would have otherwise not been. Friends, you and I need to realize that our decisions to half-heartedly obey God can have a big impact on those we influence. Have there been compromises that you have made that have impacted people who look up to you or maybe who are under your care? When we make compromises in our entertainment choices or or show our families, our friends, our co-workers that we're willing to dance around God's instructions or to take our personal call to be holy, to be set apart for God's glory and His service, we take that lightly. And when we do, we leave them exposed to harmful influences or encourage them not to take God seriously, maybe to play fast and loose with His truth. In Dinah's case, Jacob's failure to wholeheartedly follow God had devastating, life-altering consequences. Shechem was captivated by Dinah. What it, was it her beauty, her personality? There was something about her that was just magnetic for him. He wasn't satisfied to let this just be a, a one-time fling. No, he was bent on having Dinah for his wife. Verse 3, it says this. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Doesn't exactly sound like the nicest way to talk to dad, but there you go. Verse 5 reveals another misstep on Jacob's part. It says this in verse 5. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field. So Jacob held his peace until they came. Now this is very interesting. You would think that when Jacob heard the news of his daughter, that he would have just been furious. He would have just been livid. You would think that he would have been shaken to the core and either impassioned to go and avenge her honor, or at the very least, go meet her and talk to her, maybe try to talk some sense into her, maybe try to bring her back home with him. But this verse, it tells us he did Nothing. What's going on here? It's not like Jacob is some insecure, inactive, introverted, spineless wimp who was afraid of confrontation. Now, this is the man who did whatever it took to get what he wanted. This is the man who wrestled with God. This is the man who intentionally walked into harm's way and pursued reconciliation with his brother who had vowed to kill him. But when his daughter's honor had been trampled, and when the dignity of his family, God's set-apart people, had been marred, he does nothing. It says, he held his peace. 
You know what this looks like? It looks like Jacob is failing to lead. It looks like he's foregoing his responsibility to stand for what's right and defend those in his care. And Jacob isn't some, some lowly servant in the family. He's not, not some insignificant nobody who really doesn't have any, any say. No, he's the father. He's the patriarch. He's the leader. But rather than lead, here in chapter 34, he seems completely content to sit back in the recliner and wait for others to make the move. The leader in a way, becomes the follower. And that leaves us asking a, a really important question. Why? Why would someone who knew his rightful place, who had no reason to fear, who had seen God come through for him time and time again, who had seen the, actually that ever-present ladder which connected him directly to God's grace, and who knew that his family had been specifically set apart for a great purpose, why would someone like that just sit back and surrender his responsibility to lead? Well, it's the same thing that I think so many of us do these days, isn't it? It's so much easier to sit back and let someone else do the hard work. Let someone else stand up for what's right. Let someone else be the one who makes the waves and takes the hits. Let someone else do the, the confronting, the striving, the fighting. How many fathers today would rather sit back on the sofa gripping the TV remote rather than standing up for holiness taking an active role in leading their families in God's truth? How many young people would rather sit in the back seat and let their friends do the driving, deciding what activities are okay for them to participate in, to be enjoyed by the group, when they should be holding fast to their convictions, making sure that their actions are honoring to the Lord and pointing their friends to Christ? How many co-workers will just go with the flow, laugh at the jokes, let their language even be peppered with same off-color words used by their associates rather than let the light of Christ shine in the darkness of the workplace? Here's an important truth for us to remember. If you don't lead, if you don't stand for what you believe, if you don't rise to the occasion... Someone else will. There are consequences when we fail to take responsibility. And Jacob, he discovered that all too quickly. His failure to wholeheartedly follow the Lord as the leader of his family, it led his sons to take matters into their own hands. And we see that in verse 6. It says this, And Hamar, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. When Jacob's sons got wind of what was going on, they were furious. Remember last week? Remember last week we noted that there are times when Getting angry is a good thing. Getting angry at the wrongs that are happening in our world, that's not a bad thing. Of course Dinah's brothers were angry. 
Wrong had been done to their sister. Wrong had been done to the family. Such a thing must not be done, it says right there. They knew that. Their father knew that. But since it didn't look like he was going to do anything about it, they decided that they needed to do something about it. Shechem's father approaches with a a proposition in verse 8. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give, Give your daughters to us. Take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us. And the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes, and whatever you say to me, I will give. Ask for me as great a bride price and gift as you will, and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife. Shechem's father, he speaks with Jacob's sons, offering to pay any price, any price for their sister's hand, for Jacob's daughter's hand. And that was a really generous offer, especially considering in those days, the bride price, it was standard. Everyone paid the same. Probably helped kept people from, (laughs) some girls from feeling better or worse about themselves. But what sweetened the deal here was the suggestion that that this union would unite the two families. This marriage would create an allegiance between Israel and Hamar's family. And they would have property. They would have unrestricted opportunities to make money, to become prosperous in this land. It sounded like a really good deal. In essence, Hamar was trying to make an offer they just couldn't refuse. But as we all know, when something seems too good to be true... It probably is too good to be true. That certainly was the case because we find in verse 23 that Hamar's real intention was actually to absorb Israel, to take all of their wealth for he and his people. This isn't all that unlike the temptation of Jesus, remember? Jesus is faced with Satan in the wilderness and Satan offers him the world. I'll give you all of it. They'll all bow down to you. It'll all be yours if you just bow down to me. That's what he really wanted. He wanted Jesus to give up his mission and enslave Jesus to his service. Well, that couldn't happen. The sons of Jacob, they didn't buy this, but they played along hoping to score an advantage and they they agreed to allow their sister to marry Shechem on one condition, and that is as long as all the men of Shechem be circumcised. Now that, my friends, is quite the counteroffer. What may seem like a bold move, it was actually an incredibly disrespectful and blasphemous one. You see, they used the sacred covenant, the sign of the sacred covenant that God had made with them as a bargaining chip, a tool to trick, trick Hamor and gain an advantage over his people. Essentially, they were just making a mockery of God's covenant. Not an honorable thing to do. Certainly not honoring to God. They may have thought that they were defending their sister's honor, their family's honor, maybe even God's honor, but this wasn't the right way to do it. Their strategy was deception. Now, I wonder where they could have learned that from. Certainly, they would have 
heard stories of their father having deceived their grandfather into giving that blessing to him. Still fresh in their memories must have been the deception that dad played on Uncle Esau. From Jacob, they learn that there's nothing wrong with deceiving others to get what you want. You see, dad's character, it became a model after which they patterned their lives. Only they took it to a whole new level. Jacob had used it to get ahead. They used it for murderous revenge. Their father's corrupt behavior, well, it further encouraged their already corrupt hearts. Look at verse 25. It says, On the third day, when they were sore, and I'm sure, yes, they were sore, Two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses, they captured and plundered. Taking advantage of, of that weakened state, Simeon and Levi, they swoop in and exact revenge on Shechem. They kill all the men, probably thinking that since they hadn't objected to what happened with Dinah, that they were all guilty. And then they took everything for themselves. It's ironic, isn't it? The plundering that they did, that was the, the very plundering that the people of Shechem were planning to do to them. This was brutality. This was merciless. This was the kind of thing that you would expect to see in a mafia film. The sons of Jacob, they were right to be angry, but what had been done to their sister... Well, that was absolutely wrong, but they allowed their anger to lead them astray. At the core of their actions, they were just following in their father's footsteps. His character, it had rubbed off on them. And that wasn't a good thing. Refusing to confess and turn from our vices, that can have a lasting impression and influence on others, can't it? Had Jacob wholeheartedly followed the Lord and allowed him to bring about real transformation in his life, this whole ordeal may have turned out a lot different. When all the while his life could have been teaching his children what it meant to trust and obey, to submit and rely on God's goodness, his life well, it seemed to only further fan into flame the corruption that was already going on in their hearts. He could have been pointing them to the one who could have tra transformed them, healed their poisoned hearts by showing them what it was like to wholeheartedly follow the Lord. But instead, his actions merely served to train them up in craftiness, in deceit. What a tragedy. It was too late for Jacob. The damage was already done. All he could do now was guilt them into feeling sorry for the trouble that they may have caused him. It says this, Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, 
You brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, Should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Interesting, isn't it? Interesting that even here, all Jacob seems to care about is himself. You hurt my reputation. You put me at risk. You know, his sons may have done wrong, but at least they seem to care something for their sister. That's more than Jacob shows. Some parents, they lay the world at their children's footsteps. Others, they do everything in their power to keep even the slightest bit of trouble from ever crossing their children's path. Some friends, they would do anything to keep the ones they care about from feeling uncomfortable. Others would would cross boundaries and set aside convictions and play any part just to fit in. Some co-workers, they, they keep their faith private. It's a personal thing, a secret thing. Others, you know, would swear, steal, lie, even manipulate to impress their associates or work their way up the corporate ladder. Don't forget this. The greatest gift that you can give others, it's not your money, it's not your time, your talent, your protection, it's not your cooperation. It's not, it's not your approval. It's a life. A life that is wholeheartedly devoted to God. Jacob's family, they were, well, they were torchbearers. They were the ones that God would use to bring about his great promise to save the world that was spiraling downward. But you know, they themselves were not the hope that the world needed. <laughs> Thankfully. Their hearts, they were corrupted just the same as everyone else. It was only in God's promised one that was coming that they would find their hope. It was in Jesus Christ alone that they would, could exchange their corruption for incorruption. And unless Jacob was pointing them to trust in that hope through his wholehearted obedience to God, well, he was just encouraging them in the wrong direction. Where does your life point others? Where will your children your friends, your co-workers find themselves headed if they look at the roadmap of your life. My friends, let's settle for nothing less than wholehearted devotion to God so that others might see Him for who He truly is and exchange what is corruptible for what is incorruptible. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come before you 
And we are humbled because as we look at this tragic, this gruesome tale in Genesis 34, we know that there are aspects of this that are so similar to our own lives. In so many ways, Lord, we have wandered. We have gone astray. In so many ways, Lord, we have failed as parents, as friends, as grandparents, as co-workers. We failed ourselves. We failed others. We failed to wholeheartedly follow you, to be devoted to you completely. We're robbing ourselves when we do so, Lord, and we're, we're harming others by our example. We're not pointing them to you. We're pointing them to trust in themselves and that compromise is okay, and that is not good. Lord, Thank you for your patience with us. Thank you for forgiving us even when we fail. But Lord, we ask, Lord, we beg that you would transform us. That where there are character flaws in our lives, Lord, that you would bring transformation. You would root them out of us. And where, Lord, we would desire to, to give only half-hearted obedience, Lord, would you remind us of who you are and the authority you have over our lives. And Lord, would we obey you fully and trust you in every aspect of our lives. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your goodness towards us, for your grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name and for his glory. Amen. Praise the Lord, His mercy is more, stronger than darkness, it's new every morn, our sins they are many, His mercy is more, what love could remember, no wrongs we have done, omniscient all some thrown into a sea without bottom or shore. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. What patience would wait as we constantly roam? What Father so tender is calling us home? He welcomes the weakest, the vilest, the poor. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. Praise the Lord. His mercy is more. Stronger than darkness, new evermore. Our sins, they his mercy is more. What riches of kindness he lavished on us. His blood was the payment, his life was the cost. We stood neath the debt we could never afford. Our sins, they are many, his mercy is
new every morn. The sins they all make, His mercy is more. God bless you, church. May the Lord keep and protect you.